Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. So for each and every one of us, there will come a time in which we, be, we will be called out to take a stand for what is right and what is good and what is true. For each of us, there will be a situation in which we find ourselves standing at the edge of what feels like an emotional or spiritual cliff. And we will know that we need to jump into what feels like the unknown. For each of us, there will be at least one day in our lives in which we will face a most difficult choice that means we will have to decide what we ultimately believe is true. This will be a time in which we are called to be brave. This is a time that takes genuine courage. This will be a time that tests what we are made of. This will be a time at which we are standing on the edge of a really serious decision. This will be a time in which we decide who we really are. This is when you take a stand. If you're younger, you may not have faced one of these of that severe quality yet. Sometimes there are smaller stands that you will have to take that prepare you for the big one. So be prepared. For the older ones among us this morning, I'm including myself in that group. I'm sure that is at least one scene that is going through your mind right now when I say this. Perhaps there's a few. But I'm confident that each of you has at least one situation like this in your life that you can think of. Because life will eventually call us to take a stand. So we're in a series through the book of Esther entitled, When God Seems Invisible. The book of Esther never mentions the name of God throughout the entire story. But is God invisible? This morning, we find ourselves at a point in the story in which Esther is called upon to take a stand. Now, here's some of the backstory that you can catch in our podcast or our YouTube channel if you want to go back there. Esther and her adoptive father, Mordecai, were Jews living in the capital city of the empire of Persia called Susa. And through a sort of tragic turn of events, Esther has been chosen by King Ahasuerus to be his trophy queen, and she lives in the harem in the king's palace with the king's other wives or concubines. Neither Esther nor Mordecai chose to reveal to anyone that they were of the Jewish faith. 
Mordecai has a lower government job and works for the king. Haman, who was mentioned that we read about today, is one of the king's seven high counselors with unlimited access to the throne room. And he wants everybody to bow down to him as he is passing through the palace and all the workers should fall on their face. And in the strength of his conscience, Mordecai believes that it is wrong for him to bow down and worship another man because Jews only worship God, not other men. And in his rage, learning that Mordecai is a Jew and wanting to punish Mordecai, Haman persuades the king to issue a decree throughout the entire empire to plunder and kill all the Jewish people in the empire. That's where we left off last week. Now, because of Mordecai's stand for his conscience, now his entire race, the people of Israel, the people of God of Israel, are threatened. And Mordecai is grief-stricken. But this, his adoptive daughter is queen. Perhaps there is hope. And that's where our story continues today. And what I want to show you today is the challenges to taking a stand. And then secondly, the kind of stand they take. The challenges and the kind of stand that they take. So the decree to kill and plunder the Jews was published and sent throughout the entire Persian Empire. Esther is isolated in the harem. And being queen of Persia is not like the show The Crown. She was not a person with any real responsibility. She was a woman in a man's world. She was a figurehead without authority. She lived in the harem and fraternized with her husband when summoned. And it had been 30 days since she had been summoned. And the decree to annihilate the Jewish people went out from the palace to the entire empire but in the harem, politics were barely known. Mordecai has to give her handler, a eunuch by the name of Hatak, a copy of the decree so that Esther can even begin to understand what is wrong. She was completely out of the loop. She lived in isolation under the protection of the officials in charge of the harem. When Esther finds out about the decree, she is astonished to say the least. Nobody around her knows, but she knows and Mordecai knows that she is a Jewish woman. She is part of the religious race of Jewish people targeted by the decree of the king. And in theory, she could keep her identity a secret. She could hide from her faith and hide from her Jewish heritage. She could. She could let all the other people be killed and simply protect herself. Mordecai warns her. The cat now is almost out of the bag. He is known as a Jewish man, and sooner or later, people are going to put two and two together and realize that if her adoptive father is a Jew, she must also be one since they are related. So she can no longer plead ignorance and remain in self-isolation or self-protection. Fate has painted her into a corner. Esther is powerless in the harem. 
Though she is referred to as the queen, she has no actual authority within the kingdom whatsoever. She is the king's trophy wife. She is a figurehead, but not a leader. The king does not consult her with matters of state, and he largely views her as his property. The woman to look good at his side and to satisfy his needs as a man. And her husband and one of his seven chief counselors has now targeted the entire religious race of of people, including Mordecai. And she may not have any true authority, but she is the queen. She is in that role for such a time as this. Not only that, Esther is afraid of the king. She hasn't been summoned to visit him in 30 days, but she really has no authority within herself to reach out to him. She can't summon him. In the Persian Empire, only the king's seven high and trusted advisors were welcome to enter into the king's presence uninvited. Haman was one of those seven advisors. And do you know who couldn't go anytime she wanted? The queen. One could petition the king for an audience and his clerks would decide which petitions to take to the king and which to ignore. The clerks who sorted the requests for the people to visit the king were kind of like an ancient form of voicemail. Leave a message, we'll let you know. And surely many messages were left that never received an answer. Now, someone who was not one of the king's seven top advisors may take it upon themselves to enter before the king uninvited. Perhaps there was some kind of an emergency in which they would swallow their pride and walk in. But this is what happened. If someone entered to the king uninvited, the king may choose to extend his golden scepter from his throne. And he could welcome that person into his presence. But if a person came before the king uninvited and the king did not extend the golden scepter, the punishment was death. It's not a given that when Esther would approach the king uninvited that he would welcome her. And there's this unknown question as to whether or not her relationship with the king might have been that great at the time. Esther doesn't really have access to the king. Now, up until this point, Esther has been isolated from the situation. She has no real political power as queen, and she has no true access to the king as queen. And All that lies before her is genuine uncertainty and great danger, but what is she going to do? When I thought about this situation, it kind of reminds me of another story in the Bible, the story of Moses. Here's a Jewish boy being raised in the palace of Egypt as the son of the princess of Egypt. Meanwhile, his people, the people of Israel, the religious Jewish race, were slaves building the empire of Egypt brick by brick with their blood, sweat, and tears. And at a certain point in his life, Moses has to decide whether he is Egyptian 
or whether he is Jewish. Esther, similarly, is at a point in her young life at which she has to decide Is she going to identify herself with her heritage and by her faith? She has two major hurdles that she must overcome. Up until now, her faith has been completely private. Nobody knew whether she was faithful or unfaithful to her faith because nobody knew that she even had faith. Whatever faith she had was a complete secret from anybody but Mordecai. And may I, as your pastor, tell you something very, very, very important about your faith. Your faith may be personal. It may be something that's intimate. It's something that belongs to you and you alone. You have it, and it impacts your life. But your faith may never be private. By definition, faith is the governing center of our hearts and lives as Christians. And when you truly believe something, it shapes who you are. And if your faith shapes who you are, it will of necessity eventually reveal itself to the people around you. Faith is not just this private thing that we have to ourselves that nobody has to know about. If that's all your faith is, it's it's weak and could even be in danger of dying. Faith is very personal, but it is not private. Faith, by definition, is such a big and important part of our lives that it's it's going to leak its way out into all the other area of our lives, like family and work and relationships and school and community and church and the world, ultimately. The second way that she needs to take a stand is that she's going to have to take a stand with and for her people. Nobody knows that she's Jewish, but now that her people are threatened, she must choose to stand with them. She must identify herself with the faith and with the ethnic community of Israel. Now, people will often say, I like religion. I like faith. I like spirituality. What I don't like is organized religion. I don't like the church. And there is a part of me that is very sympathetic with that statement. Sometimes people get hurt really, really badly in church. The church has sex abuse scandals. The church has spiritual abuse scandals. The church has financial scandals. There have been fringe religious cults that um, shape public perceptions of organized religions. 
When religions and politics get so mixed together, people back away from religion because they don't want to be involved with the politics. And sometimes there are members of churches who are broken and mean and harmful. And if you have been one of the victims of one of these abuses, you will not like church and you have justification for not liking church. The church may not have served you in the spirit of Jesus or according to the way of Jesus. And let me say on behalf of the church, if you are one of those who has been deeply harmed, I am terrifically sorry. West Church is by no means perfect or exempt from doing harm. But it is my prayer that we will also be a place of hope and healing for those who have been hurt by the church. Having said that, I also want to say and emphasize again that Christianity is not a private faith. It is made to be lived out in community. And the church is called in the Bible, it's called a people, it's called a nation, it's called a family, it's called a body. And the idea of God from the very beginning is that we would do faith together. And when the church is healthy, we need each other and we depend upon each other. We lean into one another and we love one another. We help one another and we serve one another. And even when doing church is hard and people are not so great, what happens then is the church becomes a fishbowl in which we live our, learn to live our faith by being patient, forgiving, and offering correction to the stubborn and the wayward. Esther had been living without her people. Now she is going to have to take a stand with her people. And as your pastor, I challenge you to, today to consider standing with the faith family that is West Church, if you're a regular here. If you have genuine faith and a living relationship with Jesus, take a stand, become a member, and serve here with what God gives you, give back to others. There are some challenges to taking a stand that are not unlike the challenges that people face today. To make your faith public and to live among the people of faith. But let's notice in particular, in this part of the story, the kind of stand that they take. How do they take a stand? Look at Mordecai in verses 1 through 3 when he realizes that his actions have resulted in a plot against his entire people, he responds with lament. In the ancient world, you would publicly and physically show that you were grieving or lamenting by tearing your regular clothes, your robes, and putting on sackcloth, which... It was probably like something like burlap today. 
And then you would put ashes on your head. That's why Ash Wednesday, they put ashes on the face of the worshipers to mourn the death of the Lord Jesus. This was a public display of remorse, lament, and mourning. In addition, Mordecai was so horrified that he actually walked around like that, crying out in public. But really, what happens is the entire Jewish race, whether the, wherever the decree went, resulted in the same response throughout the entire empire. Verse 3 mentions that all the Jewish people were fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Interesting thing, those three words come from or refer back to or were captured in another one of Israel's teachers by the name of Joel, a prophet of the people in the Hebrew Bible. Those same three words in Joel chapter 2, Joel is a prophet in which he warns against the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord when justice comes from God. And in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Tear Tear your heart open to God, not just your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? Who knows, Mordecai says, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Hmm. The prophet pleaded with God's people, allow the difficulties that you are going through right now to draw you near to your God. Don't just rage against the machine. Humble yourself and draw near to God. He is the one who can ultimately change our circumstances. Verse 16 and 17 When Esther realizes what she's going to have to do, she is humbled. She is overwhelmed. She is afraid because what she has to do goes way beyond the personal resources that she has within herself as an individual. The whole situation is beyond her abilities and beyond her authority to intervene. She needs help, and the one she needs most is God. So she sends her handmaids and go to tell, to tell Mordecai that she's going to fast and to pray, and she commands Mordecai to tell all the Jewish people in the city to fast and to pray, because when the people of God take a stand, the stand that they must take must be in God and not in themselves. Now, when we as Americans hear the words, take a stand, we tend to think in terms of the idea, protest. We make our signs and we march on the halls of government. We petition leaders and show up at meetings and express our discontent. We put signs out in front of our yard telling the neighbors who have signs out in front of their yards that we disagree with them. 
We rush to our Facebook and our Twitter and our Instagram and we start vomiting our opposition and opinions all out to our friends. And then we start sending YouTube videos and blogs to all of our friends and create this kind of echo chamber of voices and messages that all agree with us. And we make a plan to resist. We write an editorial. We think we're taking a stand. But when we tend, think, think of taking a stand, we tend to think of resistance. But when Mordecai and Esther take a stand, it's different. They start by humbling themselves and petitioning God. The first line of defense for the people of faith for taking a stand is seeking to align our bodies, our minds, and our hearts with the heart of God. Oh God, we don't have what it takes to resist this. Oh God, what is going to happen to us? Oh God, I'm not sure what to do. Oh God, I, I'm so afraid for myself and my family. Oh God, I am concerned about our faith community. Oh God, we need you. We need you. We are at the end of our rope. We need you now. Hear us. Help us. We are yours. And may I humbly say to you that the most mature response to the sins of society all around us is not outrage, but grief and sadness. The sins and harmfulness of society are not just something to be angry about. They are something to be sad and grieved about. Because if we only respond in anger and fear, our response will be one of vengefulness and retribution. The reason we grieve and we mourn is because we know that if God wasn't gracious with us, we would be just as lost as the rest. If God did not have mercy on us, we could be doing exactly the same thing. If Jesus did not die for us, our sins, we would still be dead in our transgressions and sins. We do not go along with the sins of our culture because we are better than them. It is because we have been humbled by our God, forgiven by His grace, and our hearts and our minds and our lives are made alive by His Spirit to help us be different despite ourselves. If we do not humble ourselves before our God, we are quite capable of harming others the same way that they harm us. And Jesus breaks our will for revenge. Our Lord and Savior died praying for his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
when we take a stand as Christians, we make sure that our hearts are humbled and aligned with our God. This doesn't mean that there might be still more to do, okay? But it does mean that this is what we must do where we need to start. We start with our God. If we're going to take the right kind of stand, our hearts must be humbled and made right with Him. God is our strength and our portion, our ever-present help in trouble. No matter what we face, we must go to Him and seek in our hearts to always be right with Him. When Mordecai and Esther realized that they must take a stand by faith against the evil in behalf of their people, this is the kind of stand that they take. They humble themselves, they grieve the wrong, they seek to align their hearts with the heart of God. Esther learned that she would have to take a stand and she would have to seek God. And then she would have to act. And that's the rest of the story, of course. In verse 16, this is what she says. If I perish, I perish. Esther became willing to lay down her life in order to rescue her people. In some small way, Esther is a picture of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. As those who live in God's world, who were made for Him and made to know Him, we all have turned our backs on God and we all wish to run our lives by ourselves apart from Him. We have all rebelled against the God who made us. And we disobey God and we deny God and we refuse God. And we find ourselves estranged from our God and in need of mercy and forgiveness. So Jesus, the Son of God, bridged that gap that exists between us and His Father. He came and He gave His life on the cross for us. He gave His life so that we might live. He took the penalty for our crimes against God upon Himself. And He died the death that we deserve so that we might receive the life that we don't deserve. And this is our God. God the Father sending God the Son, Jesus, and Jesus the Son coming in behalf of the Father. God knew what He needed and He rescued us from sin and destruction. So He stepped in to rescue us. He, his life for ours so that we might be set free and live a forever life knowing and loving Him. Esther became willing to risk her life in behalf of her people. Jesus actually gave his life in our behalf. And when we know that the Jesus who gave himself for us, when we know how much he has forgiven us, when we experience freedom from guilt and shame, and when we know what it is to have the joy in God's mercy towards us, then we have the kind of heart and spirit that can rightly take a stand in this world and love others who need the mercy 
of God. Let's pray. Father, for our own sin, we humble ourselves and say, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. And for the sins of our, our church, Lord, we own them, we forsake them, and we say thank you for your mercy. And for the sins of our society around us, the sins of the culture in which we live, of which we are a part, we cry out, Lord, have mercy. Save us from ourselves, lest we perish. Where would we be without your mercy? So we worship you. We worship you, great God. If you are able to save us, you are able to save others. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Cause your name to be lifted up high and transform men and women and boys and girls all around us that the power of the kingdom of God might be known in truth. And help us to stand for the one in whom we trust. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.